invite you to open your Bible with me this morning to the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, and we're in chapter 3 as we're picking up our series again in the book of Romans. I was intending to go from verse 9 through the end of verse 20, but we're going to make it only through the verse 18. There's just simply too much here that I think we really need to pay attention to. So Paul, if you remember, has been making an argument starting in chapter 1, verse 18, uh, concerning the, uh, the nature of human sin, what's wrong with the world. And uh, he's talked about the, the sin of the Gentiles and their, their idolatry and the sexual immorality that goes along with that. Um, he's talked about uh, the sin of the Jews and the fact that they have the law, but they don't keep the law, and so that they are also guilty, so that all alike are under um, condemnation. And he's going to then start wrapping up his argument here in verse 9. Let's give our attention to God's Word. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips." Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Father, thank you for this inspired word that is so needy in our world today and so needy for us to hear. And so we pray your spirit would accompany the preaching with that wonderful uh, insight, that spiritual understanding that, that only he can give so that we might see the truth of our need and the glory of our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the text before us this morning has some of the most uh, radical and convicting truths in all the whole world of religious thought. Uh, if you ask the question, uh, what's wrong with the world today, the human mind will immediately uh, begin to look for answers outward, right? Uh, so people will look around and they'll scan the horizon and, and uh, some will say, well, it's, it's these harmful ideologies out there like Marxism or capitalism or materialism, things like that. It's an ideology that's taken hold. Others will point to a lack of education or lack of employment opportunities. But whatever answer is given, the direction of the answer will be outward. The problem is somewhere out there. And Paul answers the question in a profoundly and very convicting way. Uh, the problem with the world is there is a universal bondage to sin and it starts right here in the human heart, in every human heart. Uh, we're continuing, as I said, Paul's discussion concerning the, the biblical doctrine of sin. That's what we have here in chapter 118 through 320. And it's one of the very most important doctrines in the Bible. High school theology class, we're going to be hitting this 
um, not this coming Wednesday, but the next. It's safe to say that it's not possible to understand the truth of the gospel if you do not understand the biblical doctrine of sin. Your understanding of the gospel will be, it'll be blighted. It'll be, it'll be, uh, it will not be robust. Uh, and, it's, and it's foundational, this doctrine is, not simply to understanding the Christian faith, but to experiencing and owning the Christian faith. One of the primary reasons uh, church kids lose their faith in college is that they've never come to grasp with the biblical doctrine of sin. They're brought up in the church, assuming that uh, church people are, Christians are good people, and, and unbelievers are bad people, and then they get out into the world and they see uh, Christians acting very badly, and unbelievers acting with kindness and, and with courage, and they decide it's all a lie. It's not true. Well, yeah, they're right. What they assumed is not true. But they didn't understand a biblical doctrine of sin. One of the reasons there's so much anger in our society and so much anger in the church is because people have lost a biblical doctrine of sin. We angrily point our fingers and condemn others while completely forgetting that we are no different. That's Paul's point here in our text. We're going to spend the first half just unpacking the text together, and then we're going to take some time to um, unpack the ramifications. What would it look like if we really understood this, if we really got what Paul is saying here? Well, let's begin by looking at verse 9. Where first, we're going to see Paul um, explains the predicament that we're in, and then there's, there's a predicament, and then secondly, an indictment, and then we'll look at the application. The predicament is verse 9. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. When Paul asks, are we Jews, he's right, counting himself as one of them. When he asks, are we better off, what he means is, are we any better off before the judgment throne of God? Is there an advantage to being a moral, law-abiding, temple-attending Jew as opposed to being a sexually immoral, godless Gentile when it comes to the day of judgment? Is there an advantage? Now, every Jew within hearing distance um, would immediately say, yes, absolutely there's an advantage. And Paul unequivocally, emphatically says, no, there is no advantage, not at all, none. You see, Paul is trampling all over this dearly held uh, religious assumption uh, that, that exists in the Jews of his day, but actually it's an it's a assumption of moral or just people all over the world with a conscience. Right? We can't help but assume that if there is a God and if there is a judgment, moral people will have an advantage over the immoral people when they come to that day of judgment. Right after all, everyone knows that good people get blessed, good people go to heaven, bad people get bad things, and bad people go to hell. Everyone knows that. And Paul says it's a flat-out lie. It's not true. It's not true at all. Why not? 
Well, because the problem, uh, the human problem, is not primarily a problem of morality. It's primarily a problem of status. If you have your Bible open, look at verse 9 and pay careful attention to what Paul says. The charge he's making in verse 9 is not that everyone sins. The charge he's making is that everyone is under sin. All are under sin. It's a category Paul is creating. Paul sees sin as a ruling power, a a dominant principle of evil that holds people in bondage and slavery. So a a drug addict might be a good illustration. You might see a a man and you ask yourself, why does that man uh, steal things even from people that he loves? Why does he do things that are, pri- that are profoundly harmful to his emotional and his physical and his relational well-being? Why does he do that? And the answer is that he is under the power of an addiction, a drug addiction. He's in bondage. He's enslaved. And you will never accurately understand that man unless you address his status, not just his actions. Now, that doesn't mean he's not guilty. Of course he's guilty. It just means that he's powerless. He's trapped in a profound way. That's the principle Paul has in mind. The problem with with mankind is not simply that people do things they should not do. If if that were all it it was, then we could just tell people, well, stop doing that. Don't you? You're, if you do that, you're going to go to hell. You need to, you need to stop, and you need to change. You need to start doing these things. Well, that doesn't work, does it? It doesn't work for other people. It doesn't work for yourself. Haven't you ever told yourself, I need to stop doing this? You see, the problem is that the entire human race is in bondage to the ruling dominion of evil, and they can't escape And so Moose says the problem with people is not just that they commit sins, but that they're enslaved to sin. What is needed, therefore, is a new power to break in and set people free. You see, our problem is a status problem. Let me give you another illustration to just make that point a little more clearly. um, When when I fly, I always look somewhat longingly at the uh, the Sky Lounge in the airport. Um, I uh, was able to go into the Sky Lounge once. I experienced first class once in my life. Someone gave me a, a gift, and uh, it was on the, the, the flight to Brazil a few years ago, and, and I got to go into the Sky Lounge, and I got to sit in the first class seats. And I have to say, I like first class. <clears throat> I like it a lot. And when I walk past the Sky Lounge, I would love to go in and uh, you know, they, you, they got uh, these nice comfy recliner chairs and complimentary drinks and an open buffet. It is, I think they have these hard, miserable plastic seats in the airport just to drive people to purchase first class to get in the Sky Lounge. But you can't go into the Sky Lounge, right? There's a desk right there by the entrance and you have to, uh, if you're going to go in the Sky Lounge, you've got to show your card which proves your status. You have to have a certain status to get in the Sky Lounge. You've got to have a certain credit card. Um, you have to have a, a certain uh, ticket. You have to have atta- attained the status, and nothing else will suffice. I can go up there and say, I, you know, plead I'm a really nice guy. I could say, um, I'm doing the Lord's work. That's important. I could tell them I've had a l- really hard day. 
None of it matters. None of it suffices. The problem is a status problem, and if I don't have the correct status, I'm not getting into the Sky Lounge. It's exactly the way it is when it comes to salvation. You have to have the correct status in order to enter the gates of heaven. And the status is you have to be righteous in the eyes of God and perfectly innocent before the law of God, and nothing else will do. See, that's where the Jews made their mistake. The Jews thought that when it came their time to step up to the desk at the gates of heaven, all they had to do is whip out their ethnicity card and show, I'm, I'm a child of Abraham. And, and on top of that, they could whip out their, their Law of Moses card and say, I ascribe to the Law of Moses, and I, try, I strive very hard to keep the Law of Moses. And they could slap those down there on the desk, and they fully expected that the, uh, the, the lady there at the desk would say, well, you just come right on in. And Paul says, it's not going to work. There are a lot of people who have that same assumption, people who think that they can uh, take out their church membership card. And they can show, I went to church, and I tithed. Or they can take out their moral achievement card, their volunteerism card. And they, and they can show that there. But, but Paul says, none of it works. You see, none of it can make you righteous. None of it is able to rescue you from your bondage to the power of sin. This is the universal human problem. That's the predicament. And then in verses 10 through 18, the indictment. This is what this problem causes. This is, this is what it looks like. Paul pulls quotes from six different places in Scripture to, to poetically and powerfully indict the entire human race. Notice the universal language if you have your Bible open. None is righteous. No, not one. You can hear somebody say, not even one? No, not, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. That is a devastating, universal indictment of the human race. There is not a single righteous person in all the history of the world, except for our Lord Jesus, right, every, every person born of Adam is in the category of under the dominion and power of sin. No one has the status sufficient to gain the blessing and, and eternal favor of God. No one understands. There's a, there's a universal willing blindness and ignorance when it comes to the things of God, the truths of God. We we, we close our ears and we cover our eyes so that we don't see the glory of God revealed in creation or hear it spoken um, through, through prophets and preachers. No one seeks after God. It doesn't mean that people don't seek after some things from God, right? So Keller writes, Tim Keller, this text doesn't say no one seeks blessings from God. Of course they do. All kinds of people seek blessings from God. It doesn't say that no one seeks answers to prayer from God. Well, sure they do. Doesn't say that no one seeks forgiveness from God. Of course they do. But Paul is saying no one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. We were created 
for God. We were created to know Him, to, to seek Him, to find our life in Him, to, to find our, our joy in knowing Him, to revel in His glory, to worship Him. Uh, that's what we were made for. And the essence of our sin is we refuse to seek God. And in verses 13, 14, that aversion to God and bondage to sin is seen in the way people talk. You can see it in the, in the way people speak, how they use their mouth. God created the mouth so that it could speak truth and speak blessing and sing praise. But men use their mouth as a fountain of evil. You can see it in the lies that people tell, the anger that spews out, the curses they utter, the bitterness they vomit. That's the human mouth. And it's universal. 1517 talks about the paths they walk. The bondage to sin is seen in the misery and the violence of our life. It leads to the, us to break promises and to violate vows. We wound with our words and murder with our anger. Uh, we run in paths of ruin and misery. This is the universal human condition. And Paul summarizes this litany of sin with the greatest sin of all, which, which is the root of all sin. There is no fear of God before their eyes. No fear of God. Fear is not just being terrified of God. It has that aspect to it. But fear of God is a, is a deep cognizance of God, the glory of God, so that you love God and reverence God. God is the sun, uh, the, the brilliant blazing sun around which the little planet of your life orbits. And you see things and do things always in relation to God. That's fear of God. And Paul says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Men do not love God. They don't reverence God. They don't, they don't reference God. They have no concern for the glory of God or the purposes of God. They're going to live their life on their terms and their way for their pleasure and God be damned. And that's how people live. That's our depravity. And it's universal. This is the biblical doctrine of sin. Everyone is in the same predicament. Everyone is under the same indictment. No one does good, not even one. And it's critical that we remember that. R.C. Sproul said, if the modern church would come to believe these verses, we would experience a revival that would make the Reformation pale in significance. What would be the evidence that we actually get this, that we understand this? Let me give you just a few. One would be, it would change the way that we see the world. It would change how we see the world. You see, um, before Paul was converted, the world was nicely divided, very neatly, into two groups of people. There were the godly people that he could fellowship with, and then there was uh, the Gentile dogs that he could despise. He could hang with these people. He was free to despise and condemn these people. But when Paul was converted, suddenly he was hanging out with people that he used to despise, godless pagans. What happened? Well, Paul came to realize that even though he was a Jew, when it came to actual righteousness before God, he was no different than the godless Gentile. There's no advantage to being a Jew. All have sinned. All have fallen short. He's no different. He's no better See, if you think that the, the problem with, morale, with, with the world is just, is, is just a moral issue, which everyone does assume, then you're, you're, can't, you won't be able to help but 
sort of place yourself on the moral scale. And you're going to see yourself over here and other people are over here. And the people on this side of the scale are the people that you feel free to hang out with. And the people on this side of the scale you feel free to condemn. For the Jews, right, they, they felt free to condemn any Gentile. It was just, you could despise them to your heart's content. So it's, why, it's why many, because you see, they were superior to them, morally superior. That's what they thought. Many Christians assume that, that they're superior to the gang-banging, drug-dealing people downtown and the gender-confused, neo-Marxist people uptown, and we simply assume that we're better than them, and so we get to, we get to despise them. Well, this doctrine destroys all that. It destroys all that. Tim Keller says the doctrine of sin radically rehumanized the human race for Paul. All kinds of people that he would never have given the time of day to, he now loved. Why? Because he knew he was no better. It just allows us to have a completely different relationship with the world around us. It opens up paths of peace when there are conflicts in our life. Have you ever been in a situation where you've been deeply sinned against or wounded, hurt by someone, and you know you should forgive, but you're stuck? You, you, you just withdraw. You can't move towards them. Well, this doctrine has incredible power to set you free because the fact is that no matter what someone else has done to you, they're not different from you. We're all made of the same cloth under the same indictment, in the same predicament. And we've done the same things to other people, and if not to other people, we've done worse things to God himself. The facts of our fallen human nature are identical. And if there's any difference at all, it is only a difference made by sheer sovereign grace. So how can we be angry with someone because they haven't received as much grace as we have? People talk about all the anger that's in our society, and it's not just, it's all over the world. All the anger in, in, in our culture, and that, and that is spilled over into the church. It's spilled over into my life. You know what the truth is? That 99% of, of our anger, of my anger, is rooted in an unexamined assumption of my moral superiority. And the same is true for you. And we can cloak our self-righteousness in moral principles and noble causes, right? We can, we can tell ourselves that we're just venting because we care and we're angrily denouncing someone because our cause is just. A moral principle is at stake, right? We can tell ourselves those things. I've done it a thousand times. The fact is we're just kidding ourselves. Our anger is rooted in moral superiority and self-righteous pride. Almost always. Parents, do you get mad at your kids? Is that because you just love Jesus so much? No, it's not. You love you so much. And you're mad that they're upsetting whatever your vision or your plan, whatever it was. And what have you forgotten? You've forgotten that you're no different. You're no different. That little rebellious heart is just mimicking yours. Do you get mad at what's happening in our society today? Do you get mad at drag queens and trans athletes and democratic politicians like Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer? Well, just remember, you're made of the same stuff. And before you vent your spleen on Facebook or simply hate them in your heart, ask yourself the simple question, what is the difference before God between me and those people with whom I'm so angry? What's the difference? 
What's the difference between me and the drag queen and the Antifa thug and the racist cop, the corrupt politician? What's the difference before God? And the answer is absolutely nothing. You're made of the same stuff. You're under the same, in the same predicament, under the same indictment. And if there's anything different in you, it's there by the sheer grace and mercy of God. So why in the world are we so angry? You see, the biblical doctrine of sin commands us to be humble, even when we're concerned about something. Religious moral superiority is insidious. It just pops up all over the place. I see it in this new category that's become popular in the world and in the church, this category of, of safe. And people cancel their social media friends and even family members because they've decided that this person is on the wrong side of some moral or justice issue, and so they are no longer safe. And we do it all in different ways, right? We just withdraw from people. They're not safe any longer. I'll never forget a story told by Rosario Butterfield. If you remember, she was a... a proud pagan lesbian teacher, a professor of queer theory at Syracuse University in New York. And then she was wonderfully, powerfully converted. And a few years later, she met and married a Presbyterian minister. And she recounts being in the church kitchen one day, preparing a meal with uh, another lady there, a member of the church, just the two of them. And the, and the, the other lady uh, was apparently a bit unsettled to realize that she was alone with, uh, with Rosario, who had been a lesbian. And so she asked Rosario, are you safe? She's asking, is it safe for me to be here with you, with your past, your sin? And Rosario, in telling the story, made this comment. What made her assume that she was safe? You see, the lady, she sensed the dangers presented by Rosario's sinful heart, but she never thought about the dangers presented by her own sinful heart. If you, if you think about it, who was wounding whom at that moment? Who was more safe? The woman who had been gloriously rescued from her lesbian past or the woman who was currently trapped in her self-righteous assumptions? We have to apply this to how we look at the world. Who's more safe, actually? The people who are just stuck in their sin and they know it or the people who are stuck in their self-righteousness and are clueless? This lady was a conservative Presbyterian. She would have undoubtedly agreed with everything that Paul says in Romans chapter 3. She just hadn't applied it. And I have to confess, that's true so often in my life, and I think it's true of yours. This doctrine is, just cuts the legs out from our posturing, our anger. It teaches us humility and and most importantly, it shows us the necessity and the glory of salvation in Jesus. You see, Paul's whole point in this is not just to beat people up. His whole point in this discussion is to slam closed every single door that people think could possibly, they could open, they could exercise in order to gain salvation. And Paul just slams every door shut until we come to the place where we realize that if we are this lost, the only way we can possibly be saved is a free gift of grace from start to finish. There's no other hope. That the gospel is necessary, absolutely necessary for us. If we are this lost, we will never, ever gain the status of righteousness by our own efforts. It will need to be a gift. It must be a gift that God freely gives. And that is precisely what it is. 
As Paul will go on in just a few verses to say in chapter 3, 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That is good news for sinners like you and me. This is a, um, this is a challenging truth, challenging doctrine. It's a doctrine that calls for repentance. Where in our life have we acted like we are morally superior? Have we acted with a self-righteous indignation where we've allowed ourselves to hate and despise and absolutely forgotten that we're made of the same cloth? Friend, I just encourage you to to ask those questions and, and then get on your knees and repent and receive the gospel in a brand new way, a gospel that maybe that goes deeper than it's ever gone before, that if you are this sinful, this lost, how great must the love of God be for you in Jesus, that Jesus Christ, knowing you, went to the cross. He didn't despise you, but he gave his life to rescue you. He gave his life to make you different, to make you new, to make you someone who understands your sin but believes profoundly and deeply in the gospel. May God grant it. Amen. Father in heaven, forgive us for our self-righteousness. Forgive us for acting like we are morally superior to others. Forgive us for the freedom with which we've despised others, the ease with which we've withdrawn from, from them. Forgive us for this sick robe of self-righteous pride that we've placed over our actions, excusing ourselves. Oh God, please give us the, by your spirit that, that wonderful conviction that leads us to repentance and then, and then show us a, in, a, in a new way the beauty of Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners. Oh God, no one seeks for you and yet you came in grace seeking us in Jesus, your Son. And Father, I just pray that breaks our heart and humbles our pride, changes our life. Give you the thanks in Jesus' name, amen.